Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. This is Trinity Radio, and I'm Braxton Hunter. And today we're going to be looking at a debate between Matt Dillahunty and Tyler Vela, two guys who I have also debated each. So this ought to be fun. Stick with us. So I've linked my debates with both of these guys in the comments below, but it's important to note that while Tyler and I disagree on some secondary doctrinal issues, we're both brothers in Christ and uh, both friends and both have debated Matt Dillahunty. And so this should be interesting because I think what comes out in this debate are some facts about how... Um, some online skeptics who take their cue from Matt Dillahunty might approach things differently than Christians do and the problems with how they approach those things. Um, with Matt, what we're going to find out is a little bit of the problem with how I think he structures his epistemology. So um, I'll begin by kind of explaining to you, kind of set the stage, because a lot of what I'm going to say here isn't directly related to the argument that Tyler brings. And uh, <clears throat> it's more related to the deeper discussion, or I should say, maybe I should say the broader discussion that they both have about how, how they approach data and evidence and how we make conclusions. So Tyler brings an argument from uh, the laws of logic and those sorts of things. And some people I've seen have mentioned that they're not sure exactly what's going on there, so I'm going to explain it a little bit. I have a chapter on transcendental arguments in my book, Evangelistic Apologetics. By the way, for those that don't know, I have several books. They're all available if you just go to Amazon and type my name in, or you can go to BraxtonHunter.com, and you can click on the Resources tab. But uh, what he's arguing here is, so many of you are probably familiar with moral arguments. And with a, with a typical moral argument, what we're arguing is that, look, um, think, uh, things can either be subjective or objective. So if we take the most obvious one that comes to mind with moral arguments, which is it's wrong to torture children just for the fun of it, right? Okay, is that objectively true or subjectively true? Well, for it to be subjectively true means that it depends on the subject. It's kind of a matter of opinion. For it to be objectively true means it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about it, it's wrong. So a good example of an objective thing would be something like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It wouldn't, ma I mean, that's just, a, just, just true. It wouldn't matter if everyone on planet Earth disagreed that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and thought that 2 plus 2 equals 7. They'd just all be wrong and 2 plus 2 would still equal 4 because it is objectively true. What we often want to point out is that most people have an awareness that to torture children just for the fun of it is not a matter of opinion. It's not subjectively wrong or immoral. It is objectively immoral. It's objectively wrong, which means that even if everyone on the earth thought that it was okay to torture children just for the fun of it, they'd just all be wrong, just like they'd all be wrong to say 2 plus 2 equals 7 rather than 4. And so uh, that's kind of, and so what, what the Christian apologists typically do is they say, okay, but if you think that morality is objective in that way, then the question is, says who? And so you need a grounding for that, uh, those objective moral values and duties. And those objective moral values and duties can be grounded in the nature of God. And so that's kind of how we argue from morality to God. Okay, what Tyler is doing is, and there's a lot more nuance that could be brought here, but just for the sake of brevity, with the, the laws of logic, so the idea that um, the law of non-contradiction, that I can't both be sitting here and recording this video for you, and at the same time, and in the same sense, not sitting here and recording this video for you at the same time, right? Th those two things can't both be true. I either am or I'm not in the same sense, right? It's, you'll typically hear people say uh, something can't be A and not 
A at the same time in the same sense, right? It's the law of non-contradiction. So there are other things like that, the law of excluded middle, the law of identity, things like this. And so what Tyler wants to argue is, look, um, those things seem to be things. They seem to be real. The laws of logic seem to be real, along with a lot of other things that we could talk about that kind of indirectly came up in the discussion. So, th those, so how do we account for those? Well, naturalism seems to have a hard time accounting for those. They seem not just to be things we invented, because if we invented them, then it wouldn't necessarily be the case that everything was um, the, the, the law of non-contradiction, for example, was true always and everywhere. Um, it, it, maybe they're just uh, you know true for our realm of the universe, but that wouldn't make sense either because the fact is that that would mean you could go to another planet or something where they don't hold and things would function differently. In fact, Tyler goes so far as to argue, uh, if the universe was not, you would still expect the law of non-contradiction, for example, to hold because... Um, then you could have no universe and a universe at the same time and in the same sense, which we, none of us would say would be the case, right? Or we shouldn't. Anyway, and so uh, if these things are real, in what sense and how are they real? And um, uh, they would have to be real spacelessly. If they would be real sans the physical universe, they would be real uh, timelessly, spacelessly, and not physically, right? They would be what we call abstract objects. Um, so how do those exist? Well, it might be that they just exist and that there are a whole bunch of them and that they just exist. And this is where he was talking about Neoplatonism. Uh, Plato kind of thought that, you know, okay, maybe um, there is in, in this realm we have uh, different iterations of things and um, they, uh, they are more or less like what they should be. So a sheep or um, a tree or whatever. But in the world of the higher things, the world of the forms, right, that perhaps there is a perfect tree that has perfect tree-ness or whatever, and uh, that, that things in this world are more or less like the pattern that exists there. So perhaps a naturalist could say that uh, sans the physical universe, there is this uh, there are these uh, the, you know forms of sorts of the laws of logic that they just exist. And the problem that Tyler raises, and I think rightly so, is that this seems to violate the law of non-con the, the law of uh, this seems to violate Occam's razor, which is the idea that you shouldn't multiply explanatory variables beyond what's necessary to explain a phenomenon. So instead of having a whole bunch of different laws um, out there, we are already familiar of the the uh, principle of, say, the law of non-contradiction or the law of the excluded middle uh, as concepts in our mind. So wouldn't it make sense then to think that the simple one explanation for these things, for their existence, is that they exist in the nature of God, in that sense. And so he reasons, kind of like we would do with a moral argument, to the conclusion that uh, these things are a good argument for God's existence in this way. And that's kind of how Tyler argues. And um, Matt pushes back by kind of saying, I, I don't agree that these things have to have some sort of ontology like that. They just, they're just descriptive of the way the universe, it just is the case about the universe that something can't be A and not A at the same time in the same sense. And, of course, Tyler pushes back and says, well, now you're kind of saying that these things do, that these principles are real, but that they just kind of in, in the Neoplatonic sense. All right, so that's kind of how that goes. And that's a very interesting discussion, and it's important to understanding the debate. But that's not really where I want to focus. Where I want to focus instead is um, on... The, the idea of how we get to things, how we get to conclusions, because this comes up throughout most of the debate. So 
Um, Matt, in his opening statement, uh, says he explains some, he, first he starts by just kind of explaining some things about how logic works, and much of it is uncontroversial. This is why Tyler says, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what you said in the first half of what you started talking about. And then he talked about how, look, you can have evidence that, that is consistent, would be consistent with a God, but is not. But God is not the only explanation. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So he talked about a unicorn, how if you found a hoof mark, that might be consistent with a unicorn, but it would also be consistent with a horse. And even if you found out that it was a unicorn, it wouldn't mean that all the um, extra things that we attach to unicorns like magic and all these other things would also be true, right? Okay, so uh, fair enough. So he puts all that stuff out there. And this is where we come to, uh, in the midst of that, he made a statement that I want us to take a look at first because he makes the statement somewhat in passing, but I think it kind of informs everything we're going to discuss going forward. So I want to go ahead and play it now. And this is where he's talking about how um, typically, this doesn't get you to anything specific. It just kind of gets you to a god of classical theism when people bring arguments, when apologists bring arguments. So let's listen to Matt right now. Quite often, we don't get anywhere near a robust definition of a god. What we get is something uh, vague or generalized, the god of classical theism with its various omnis, or some kind of abstract thinking mind that serves as a grounding for something, uh, or the the, the vague creator of order or the universe. And this plays itself out in conversations that I've had many times, which is like somebody's like, oh, look at the trees, as if looking at the trees is evidence for God, or look at order in the universe, or look at the laws of logic. And we get to a point where it's, we have something for which we would like to have an explanation. We don't necessarily have an explanation. Uh, we can't come up with a better explanation. And then people go leaping towards a God. Oh, well, how are you going to ground your morality? How are you going to tell, a, you know, reason reliably unless there's some God serving as a foundation for this? There must be something nondescript at the beginning. Okay, so now there are a couple of things I want to say about this. So he says, so typically when I, when I talk with Bill, you don't get anything specific. You just get kind of this god of classical theism, and this plays out in terms of arguments from design and look at the trees, which is an oblique reference to arguments from design and arguments from morality and uh, all these kind of things. I don't know if he said the beginning of the universe, but he could have said that as well, right? Okay, and, and Tyler mentions laws of logic and our ability to reason and those sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, first of all, it's true because if you'll notice that the title of this debate is, is there good evidence for God? It's not, is there good evidence for the Muslim God or good evidence for the Christian God? It's just, is there evidence for God? Now, that's not because Tyler's not a Christian, and Tyler has defended Christian theism specifically elsewhere. Uh, but sometimes in a debate, you're debating something very specific, and that's because we have a limited amount of time. If we were to uh, open it up to, perhaps for the reasons of this debate, if they were opened up to the Christian God, perhaps it would have taken them in a direction that the framer of this debate didn't want to take it, and it would take more time because you have to get into the resurrection and all these kind of things. Um, so it's just a debate on, does God exist? Now, obviously, there's going to be a, a God that is consistent with what monotheists like Tyler Vela and like myself are going to want to defend. But of course, it's, we're, we're talking about something not as specific as the God of Christianity or a particular brand of Christianity or denomination. We're talking about the God of classical theism. That's what we're here to do. That's why I think this is so odd when this comes up. Now, because I knew this came up, when, in my debate with Matt, I specifically was asked, what would I like to debate? And I said, 
uh, does the Christian God exist? Because I wanted to be much more specific than this. But if you're debating, is there good evidence for God, then expect to get a case for a mere theism or just God's existence. That's normal. And he says it plays out with these arguments like uh, um, uh, design or... Um, actually, I have, a, I have a T-shirt. We have a T-shirt in the Trinity Radio store on Teespring that, it, that says, look at the trees. And that's because, yeah, looking at the trees and looking at design in our universe... I think is actually a great place to start looking for reasons to believe that there's a God who ordered and designed the universe. You can read all about why in my book, Core Facts, or my book, Evangelistic Apologetics. But what I want to say here is, I, I almost titled this video, Of Mice and Men. And the reason for that, I knew it wouldn't get any clicks if I titled it that. But the reason for that is because I think that what we have here is there's a great analogy for it. So let's imagine, uh, so, so Matt's thing is, often is, and it comes up briefly in this debate, I think, is before you posit God as the explanation for something, you have to demonstrate that something like God is even a possible explanation. We've never seen a God. We've never, um, uh, our, all our previous explanations haven't involved the supernatural, haven't involved God. And so I was thinking about this. It's very much like this. Let's imagine for our analogy that we have two mice. And we'll call one mouse Tyler and one mouse Matt, all right? And so they, they come out, and let's say they live in a house, uh, and the human that they live with, the one human that lives in this house, is never home whenever they come out of their hole, just scheduling purposes. He's never there when they're there, so they've never seen him. So they come out, and the Tyler mouse looks at the Matt mouse, and the Tyler mouse says, and by the way, the house represents the universe in this, uh, in this analogy, and the Tyler mouse says, um, I, I think, I, I'm going to posit that there is some higher being than us, some greater being that, um, that, that, that exists, and I'm going to tell you why I think so. And the Matt Mouse says, okay, what is your evidence? I look forward to seeing your demonstration of that because we need a demonstration if I'm going to believe that because after all, I'm a skeptical mouse and everybody knows that about me and I need a demonstration. And so the Tyler Mouse says, yes, thank you. I know that about you. And so I'm going to lay out some reasons to believe that this higher being, we'll call him the man or the human, um, exists, okay? All right, let's hear it. Okay, so first of all, um, I've been looking at this place in which we live um, and it seems like that it didn't have to be here. It's, you know, Matt, now, uh, Tyler didn't bring some of these arguments, but just by way of framing this up. So the Tyler Mouse could say, it seems like this place didn't have to be here. It seems like this place in which we live is, uh, looks like it was created. Like it, it must have had a beginning and it couldn't have just always been here for various reasons. And in fact, it looks like there are some different realms of this place in which we live. It seems like there's a room over there that, that we could call a room. And it looks like it's for eating food because the food, we always find the food in there. And it looks like this place over here is for a fire because we always seem to find ash there when we go look in that little um, alcove off of this room. And it seems like these places have different purposes. And, and so there's there seems to be not only uh, a, cre a reason to believe this was created um, by someone much bigger than us, much grander than us, but also with some kind of a purpose. Oh, well, I don't know that there's any kind of specific purpose to this. 
the map mouse might say. And so the tiler mouse says, well, uh, here's an example. Come over here with me and look here in the middle of the floor. Th there is this thing, and it's a puzzle, but the mice not, might not know to call it a puzzle. And it has all these very specific pieces that, that seem to be fitted together to make a picture. And it's not all complete yet, but we can see how um, uh, they, they're being fit together. And it seems like someone much larger and bigger than us must have fitted them together. And so and they seem to have a specified complexity to them. And so I think that's another good reason. So we've got creation, and we've got design. And I also think, the Tyler Mouse says, that th this being that's much grander and bigger than us must uh, be, in some sense, a good being, must have some sort of moral uh, category because... We all know about the dog. Oh, yes, we, we know about the dog. Yeah, the dog always seems to have more food every day. And I've never seen the dog demonstrate any capability to get that food for himself. And um, it seems like that uh, this greater being is benevolent and good because... I think that this greater being is the ex best explanation for um, the morality we see in providing this dog food every day, that this food, the dog has the food because there's a good being that does this. So there's this grander being that is responsible for these things. Now to this, what would the mat mouse say? Well, if the mat mouse is anything like the human mat, then the, the mat mouse might say something like, yes, but Tyler Mouse, you see, you haven't demonstrated anything like a human is even a possible explanation. Of course, the problem with this is that the evidences that the Tyler Mouse is providing are meant to get you to the existence and the possibility of something like a human. The, the Mat Mouse might also say, nothing we've previously seen has involved a human. Uh, but of course, th that doesn't explain the evidences that Tyler Mouse is now raising. And your explanation may be consistent with a human, like with the hoofs and the unicorn, might be consistent with this thing you're calling a human, but how did you rule out the inhuman explanation that food appearing in the dog's bowl, the puzzle, and the existence of the house isn't just the way houses are? How did you get around that? You see, when we look at it this way, <laughs> this, this little analogy of mice and men, there, there wouldn't, no one would find that acceptable, right? Now, you could say, well, yeah, because, of course, we know, we, we happen to know that these mice, uh, that these humans do exist, that we humans exist. And so the mice are right. The Tyler Mouse is right. We just happen to know that. But the Tyler Mouse would be not only reasonable, but would have the better argument for the explanation of the things that he sees. Now, in case you're thinking, well, yeah, but those are all things that we know were designed, that we know are created, that we know are done by human beings. The specificity in our, in our universe trumps the, the specificity in a puzzle uh, exponentially over. So if you think that would be a good conclusion, then the conclusion about the universe is exponentially better when you think about God. And the same could be said about each of the other points that I put on Tyler Mouse's lips. In this video and in this debate, Tyler, the actual Tyler, raises the laws of logic. But the response is somewhat the same. While God may well be the best explanation for this, the actual Matt is saying those sorts of things. But you haven't demonstrated that anything like a God is even a possible explanation. The things that we've seen elsewhere in, in, in the past has always, I don't know if he says it in this debate, but he's certainly said it elsewhere, that there's never been a supernatural explanation or we've never needed a God explanation, which of course begs the question about the issues we're talking about now. So I think that if you frame it up in, with that analogy, you kind of see that uh, these criticisms just fall. They just fail. And this brings us to uh, the question of what would convince the Matt Mouse and what would convince the actual Matt. 
And so for those purposes, we're going to go to our second clip and let's begin taking a look at what would convince the actual Matt. Uh, the answer that I gave, which you're not going to like, but I'll expand on it a little bit more, is I have no idea. Hmm? But if there is a God, that God should know exactly what it would take to convince me, what it would take to convince anybody, and should be capable of doing so. It would be arrogant of me to think that I can tell the difference between a God and something that is so much more powerful or has a better understanding or is able to manipulate physics and, and do delusions. However, this is why I asked about whether or not God was capable of making himself scientifically verifiable. Because if he's not, then we're stuck forever. And if he is, then why hasn't he done it? To, to do this sort of thing where he like, presents himself in some sense that is undeniable, verifiable, it's not a problem that I don't know how that can be achieved. It's a problem that it hasn't been achieved because I'm not the one claiming godlike understanding of the universe. You're claiming that there's a God who has that understanding. And so if there's a God that can demonstrably provide evidence of its existence in nature in such a way that I would no longer be able to say, hey, how do I know this isn't aliens or how do I know I'm not delusional? Um, then that is something that should have happened. But to suggest that my position on this, of not being so arrogant as to, to think that I could rule out delusion or technology or whatever else, is somehow problematic with my epistemology, is fundamentally flawed. Because now we're in this position, it is. It, we're in this position because you think there's a God who created me, who gave me a mind and placed me in a universe where we cannot rule out those things. Okay, so Matt's explanation is, I don't know what would convince me, but if there's a God, he should know what would convince me. Now, this is interesting because I've actually, I actually said this in my debate with him, and I don't know why this isn't a satisfactory response to that, that should have, such that Matt should at least alter what he's saying. Because I think, and I... I I think, I think that Matt has constructed his epistemology such that nothing could ever, you know, convince him. Like he's assuming that God, that, so given Matt's free will, God could take away Matt's free will. Now, neither Matt nor Tyler think that libertarian free will, such as I uh, think exists, actually exists. Libertarian free will being the notion that most people have a free will already without uh, learning much about it. That just the idea that, uh, I, I, nothing external to me determines what I will do, you know, that I, that I really uh, can freely choose. Um, unless God took away Matt's free will and determined that Matt would believe, uh, it may be that given that self-imposed limitation on God, that God is not going to do that, all right? God could do that, but given that God's not going to do that, it may simply be that Matt has constructed an epistemology, a way of thinking, a way of interpreting evidence, such that nothing could pass the bar. And we're going to see that in spades as this continues. But uh, it, that may simply be the case. So maybe the reason that Matt can't think of what it would be that would convince him, the reason the Matt Mouse can't think of what would convince him of the human, and the reason the human mouse can't think of what would convince him of God, is, because, is not just because he can't think of it, it's because such a thing does not exist given his epistemology.
That's my explanation, and you'll see why more as we move further. So let's look at another clip where, um, where um, Tyler's going to bring up what is known as the principle of falsification. Now, the principle of falsification is if you have a good hypothesis, if you have a good theory, that theory should be, in principle, falsifiable. Now, that doesn't mean that it's false. It means that you should be able to give me some way that if it were false, I could show you that it's false. Okay, so for example, um, w with Christianity, Christianity is falsifiable. It's not false, but it's falsifiable, meaning we'll give you a way to show us that Christianity is false. Uh, for instance, if you could produce the bones of Jesus, then that would show that Christianity is false, because if the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, Christianity is false, because that is the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith. If you could, you could falsify theism, and thereby falsify Christianity, if you could show that there was something contradictory in the nature of God so defined by Christians, then you would have shown that God does not exist, right? So we, we are giving you ways that if it were false, you could falsify it. If you could show us letters from the early church, from other disciples that are saying, these guys are running around saying that Jesus rose from the dead, it's a lie, don't believe it. Okay, that would perhaps count in favor of falsification. We'll give you ways to falsify Christianity if Christianity's false, but you won't. nothing's going to end up accomplishing that. But the principle of falsification is still there. And so what Tyler is now going to ask is, okay, you, you agree with me, Matt, that a good theory, a good hypothesis is in principle falsifiable. Well, you've set up this epistemological framework that I don't think allows for um, anything to, uh, to, to pass muster to convince you. What is your falsification for your epistemological framework? And this is really good. So let's listen to um, Tyler lay that out. Would you ever consider a good scientific methodology to say, my thesis must be, my thesis must be falsifiable? but I have no clue what the hell would falsify it. Would, would, that, would that ever qualify for you as a, as a good scientific uh, way to go about un, uh, understanding a topic or coming to a, a position? Well, that's, that's not about understanding a topic. That is about the foundation. And so the, the, the fact that there are limits to the foundation is the very problem. I didn't create the universe. I didn't set things up so that there are a number of possibilities. I'm not asking you that. Though. And incomplete knowledge. I'm looking at the universe and saying, look, how can I best understand? How can I best come to reliable understandings of this? It's not the fault of science that there's supposedly a God that works in a supernatural way that isn't testable or verifiable by science. That's not a fault of the scientific method. That doesn't mean that that, method, that that epistemology is in any way flawed. What it means is that if, if you, what? I didn't, I, I'm not blaming, I'm not saying that's a fault of the scientific method. It's the but fault when, of the God. No. That's, yes, yes, it is. Ab, if there is in Only fact a God, if there is in fact a God who sets up a universe where scientific methodology is the single most consistently reliable way to understand truth. And an absence of perfect knowledge and understanding means that we cannot, nobody's demonstrated any mechanism by which we can investigate the supernatural. They haven't shown that the supernatural exists. They haven't shown that the supernatural can interfere with the natural world. They can't even show that uh, a God answers intercessory prayer or anything like that. There's no, no 
demonstration of a mechanism. If God has set up this system such that he and all of his machinations are separate from the way we look at the world to determine whether what is real and what is not, then that fault lies with God. And why would a God ever do that for the single most important question anybody could ever consider? Why? Okay, so obviously we think that he has done that. And here's the thing. What Tyler is basically asking him for when he asks for this principle of falsification is Matt is constantly saying and has just now said, we need a demonstration. And now Tyler falls into a long chain of people who have now asked Matt and not gotten a satisfactory answer. What does that demonstration look like? You're saying we need a demonstration. What would count as a demonstration? And Matt's answer has been... I, I don't know, but if there's a God, he would be able to demonstrate it to me. That's not an answer. That is to say my position, it, it's not to give us a principle of falsification for his system of epistemology. And uh, just to demonstrate that uh, Tyler is not the first to ask him this, here's uh, Blake Genta asking him this in a debate they had in 2018. Uh, so in terms of demonstration, uh, you're... Say, say, say that again for me. The, if, how would you understand demonstrated to be possible? When, when do we get that? Okay, so Blake Genta has tried to pin him down about what does it mean for something to be demonstrated. Um, let's go to my debate with Matt Dillahunty. Thank you. Now, you have said many times, and I'm not sure if you said it tonight, that we should believe something when it has been demonstrated. Can you define for me what you mean by demonstrated? And now let's take a look at Inspiring Philosophy's Michael Jones asking the same question. So I, I have a question. What, what do you mean? You said, you know, it's demonstrable. There's, you know, we need to demonstrate. You, I, Braxton Hunter brought this up with you in his debate as well. What, do, what does this mean? How do we demonstrate something in your view? Or what do you mean by that? So in the case of uh, Blake Genta, what Matt said was basically in the end of that discussion, I'll, I'll be honest, I've said on record that I don't know uh, what, would, what would be required to demonstrate uh, theism. In the discussion with, um, in the discussion with me, he he's repeated the, if God exists, he would know what it would take to convince me, and so it's on him. In the discussion with... Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, when he asked the same question, he said, I don't know, but we're stuck in this physical universe, so it would have to be something that at least is manifested in this physical universe in such a way that we would know, and it would have to be something that could be repeatable. And so um, notice then, that means that no matter how magnificent, no matter how seemingly obvious the supernatural or miraculous thing was, or communication from God was, if it can't be repeated by scientists today or by someone today, then it shouldn't be believed, no matter how amazing it was, because it's not repeatable. This sort of thing is to structure your epistemology such that that you don't have to believe anything because nothing is nothing could ever meet the standard that you have created. So then to say, if a God exists, he would know what would convince me, and he should then be able to give that to me. The problem with that is... Yes, God could make you believe. He could take away your libertarian freedom and determine you to believe. But given that you, that I, on my view, that he gave you free will, there just isn't a way around that epistemology to your belief because of the way you have structured what you will allow to pass your epistemic mustard. All right, so let's go on to the next thing now, and um, we're going to look at this clip. This is clip number seven. Let's see. Oh, let's see how extreme this gets, because Tyler brings up a really good point here. 
when when you, when you're saying a, th a thesis for in order to be reasonable in order to be true in order to be pragmatic whatever it is needs to be falsifiable i keep going back and i'm saying okay great matt if you you have the opportunity to convince me go for it i'm 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 going for it i'm go i'm going to be a logical positivist i'm 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 down with you but i need falsifiability in order for me to hold this to go go full bore with with matt there's got to be falsifiability in this position, right? It's not ego. It's not pride. It's it's not it's not arrogance to know the falsifiability of your own position. Falsifiability in which position? Because falsifiability is a component of the scientific methods. Okay, you're you're using the scientific method writ large as your evidentiary standard for your epistemology. So I'm asking you, on your epistemology, what? falsify what is the falsifiability of your epistemic standard a demonstration that something is true that so, doesn't let me let me give an example let me give let me give an example uh roger penrose calculated that the chances of the cosmos the the, the galaxy reorganizing a hundred percent of its particles is about one times 10 to the 80th power right that's the chances that that the galaxy will just randomly and spontaneously reorganize all the particles, which is somewhat terrifying, even though that's you know really beyond mathematical possibility. If suddenly some of the stars rearranged and said, Matt, I'm Yahweh, I'm here, would something like that, right? If, if you're asking for evidence, empirical evidence, would something like that count as evidence for the existence of god yes why what is what is the feature about that if you can say well i have no direct evidence for another god but i have evidence that my mind is a pattern forming machine i have evidence that this is mathematically possible in a quantum world why would you go god did it rather than any natural claim or i don't know but that's just a brute fact. That's just the way reality is. So I don't know if you caught it, but when you asked, would that be evidence for God? I said, yes, but that evidence for yeah. God is not confirmation of God. So would that actually count as evidence toward the proposition that there's God? Sure. Would that it, meet your is standard? It, is that sufficient in and on its own to convince me that there is a Yahweh God? No. And because there's, there's a number of really good reasons for this, not the least of which is how do I rule out other possibilities, but because this proposition is absurd. Now, uh, understand what we're saying here. He is saying, he is saying, it's like we've got Tyler Mouse and Matt Mouse. Does the human exist? Imagine in the, in the analogy that these talking mice can also read English. And suddenly they come out of their hole one, one day, and on the wall it says, hey, Tyler Mouse and Matt Mouse, I actually exist. Uh, the Matt Mouse would have to say, okay, that, that counts for something. Okay, that, that's, we're not throwing that out. That counts for something. But it doesn't convince me that there is something bigger than us, some, some being larger than us that could do that. Um, because how did you rule out other possible possibilities? Now, when you think about it, that, that is just... I mean, it's like what he said in the past. In his 2015 discussion with Matt Slick, he said that if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, it wouldn't be enough to convince him that something supernatural had happened. 
In the case of uh, his debate with Mike Lycona, it was asked, if an asteroid collided with the moon and suddenly in multiple languages it says God exists, would you believe that at least something supernatural would happen? Or when Mike further said, what if um, my head was severed and uh, some period later, before you left the building, my head reattached and I began to talk to you about a conversation I had with one of your dead friends or relatives, expounding to you about a conversation you had with them before they died that only you and that person knew about. Would you then believe something supernatural had happened? And in all cases, the answer was no. And the reason the answer was no is because I imagine it's not repeatable or we didn't rule out something else. I think Matt's specific thing was we'd have to say, I guess that people's heads can reattach or something like that. If that's your level, and I've said it so many times, I'm going to say it again. You can, and I'm not saying this specifically about Matt. I'm saying this about um, atheists I've encountered in general. But if you want to mock Christianity and you want to make up these memes about Christianity and you want to talk about your sky daddy and look at the trees and all these kind of things that you want to say to make it sound like a fairy tale or make it sound like Santa Claus or something like that, just understand that what sounds far more absurd is the suggestion that those kinds of things could happen and you still wouldn't believe something supernatural would happen or that God exists. That is simply absurd. And if you want to write something in the comment section of this YouTube channel, just understand you've got a full uphill battle with most regular people who do not argue with you in the comment sections who are going to read your comment and they're going to see that just sounds wild. And so um, I want to be friendly towards you, but... I mean, th th this is what we call unbridled skepticism. So it's creating an epistemic, this goes back to what I said, it's creating an epistemic framework where nothing could ever pass muster. And of course you won't believe, and God couldn't, short of taking away your freedom and determining you to believe, God couldn't give you sufficient evidence for you to believe because of the framework that you have constructed. Um, let's hear a little bit more. And I get it from apologists all the time. And I've tried a number of different ways to point out why it's absurd. And I think maybe today, maybe, maybe, if I'm really lucky, I can get to how actually absurd it is. A, never happens. It never happens. And yet these are the propositions that somebody comes up to say, ooh, would this count? The second thing about it is... Wait a minute. I want you to know, and Tyler points this out, and I may get to play the clip where he points it out. But exactly right. That, that's right, it never happens, but that's to miss the point. The point is not, what, what do I need to find to convince you? The point is to show this issue with Matt's epistemology. The point is to show that, look, even if we gave you something that is far more specific and obvious than what I'm suggesting in this debate, at least that I think you would find more specific and obvious, you still wouldn't even believe that. So it leaves me wondering, why should I waste my time trying to give you evidence and reasons when your epistemology is clearly constructed such that nothing I could possibly say would convince you? Because even if I had this over here, you wouldn't believe that. Not that I have this over here, but if I did have this over here, you still wouldn't believe. That's the sort of thing that we're dealing with. And I think that's really important to point out. You have to consider what this looks like within the paradigm. So what we're saying is there's a God, Yahweh, and instead of directly communicating with me and providing incontrovertible, uh, in, in uncontestable evidence, which he supposedly could be able to do, 
he's instead decided to write in the sky with stars. This is an absurd proposition from an all-powerful, all-knowing, benevolent being who's trying to communicate with me, his own creation, supposedly. Why would he ever need to write stuff with stars in the sky when he can communicate directly with me in a way that eliminates the possibility of me saying, oh, that's technology or delusion or whatever else. Right. Right. Before Tyler answers, because we think he has done a whole lot of other things, but we're looking for something else that might possibly, what if I give you this, would this convince you? And no matter what we come up with, it doesn't seem to be convincing because even an appearance of some sort could possibly be construed as um, a hallucination or something or, you know, something just in my head or I've gone crazy or advanced technology is making it appear as though there's an appearance. It really seems like if we whittle it down, the only way that God could convince you is to take away your epistemology by determining you to believe. I don't, I don't see another way. And I told him that in debate. I don't know what else, it w- because your epistemology is just such that, you've constructed it such that reasonably nothing could convince you that, that I can see. And that is an unbridled skepticism. And frankly, I'm taking it seriously only because there are a lot of people online who I think have followed in his footsteps. But I don't know how seriously we can take that. Be- Let me answer those three points, right? Never happens. That's the point. Right, we're going we're we're going to the farthest extreme to show that your bias actually you're not objectively open to these things like you claim you. If if your position is actually if you're saying what's good evidence for God, and I could say literally God could write rewrite the stars, and you say yeah, but that's not really good evidence. I'm just gonna say I'm sorry. I just I just don't buy that you're really objectively open to to an interest in evidence. I'm sorry if if that level of evidence doesn't rise to your evidentiary standard. I just, I'm just not I, buying it. I already it. said that it would. I already said that it would be evidence for God. I said it wouldn't be. Immediately took it back and said, "Well, that it, should it cause any belief? No, it shouldn't. So, it yeah, shouldn't so, cause anybody on its own to believe. Okay. However, you, to say that I'm somehow closed to this or the possibility of this is an outright lie, because what you would need to do is show that, hey, here's writing in the sky, or here's supernatural thing A." And we draw a line to demonstrate that it is it is undeniable that the single best explanation for this is that a God did it. I'm not close. What's that demonstration? What is that demonstration? We're telling you, what if we had literally writing in the sky telling you, Matt, that this was God? Well, you've got to draw a line that, that shows that that was really God and not something else. If that doesn't do it, what would that demonstration look like? And all we're getting from Matt is, I, I don't know what that demonstrates, but if God exists, he would know. No, perhaps he does know. The only way to convince you is to take away your free will and determine you to believe. And he accuses, frankly, this is odd because he confuses um, Tyler of lying here. Tyler's not lying. Tyler believes this. Tyler might be wrong, although I don't think so. But to be a liar, Tyler would, would have to know the truth that Matt is saying and, and be saying the opposite anyway. Tyler's not lying. He believes this. And frankly, I'm sorry, I do too. If you're telling me that if someone parted the ocean in Jesus' name, uh, an asteroid collided with the moon and it said in multiple languages that God exists, if, if Mike Lycona's head got cut off and an hour later was uh, without human involvement was reattached and he told you about a conversation he'd had, if, if, um, 
if the stars realign to give you a specific message on top of all the evidence we already have that is incredible, if you're telling me you still would not be convinced, then I, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't buy it either. And maybe I'm a liar. You can call me a liar. And I, look, I like Matt. I enjoyed our time together. I'd like to have further discussions. With, I like Matt. But I'm telling you that I just don't buy that. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. All right, let's move on to the next clip, and I want you to see this, um, because now it takes a turn. This is during the audience Q&A, where it can go any number of ways, and guess what? It had gotten a little bit cooler between the two of them. It got heated there for a second. It got a little bit cooler at this point, but uh, there's something that'll set Matt off, and that's the issue of biblical servanthood he calls slavery, and we're going to see what happens here. He said... Question for both. If you could rewrite the Bible, what would you change? <laughs> almost everything. Um, not quite everything, but almost everything. This is like somebody putting one up on a tee for, for me to point out my favorite thing that I ever said on this subject. So um, I, I, I tried to demonstrate that I could write a better book than the Bible and that I could prove it to a bunch of Church of Christ preachers by saying I could rewrite the Bible word for word, reverse its position on slavery, and it would be a better book. There's other things in there that I would change as well. But the fact that I could rewrite it word for word, reverse its position on slavery, would make it clearly a better book. Anybody anybody who suggests that it wouldn't be a better book uh, by changing that, I mean, they've sacrificed their humanity uh, for the sake of some ideology. So... It wouldn't be the only thing I'd change, but that seems to be the easiest example. Yeah, and I and again, I wouldn't change anything. I fundamentally disagree, probably with Matt's reading and understanding of those passages. So, gotcha. also a debate, probably for a different time. Yeah, especially since it's incredibly straightforward to buy your slaves from the heathen that surround you, and that you can beat them as long as they don't die within a couple of days. Clearly, not what the passage said, but again, for a different Literally. topic. Exodus twenty-one. Maybe another day, if you guys want, yep. we can have you guys come on. But it'd be whole, nice if you just read it word for word. I won't even have to show up. Just read it word for word. Yeah. It, again, it, this this shows the 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 fundamentalist background of the of the common online atheist that it's this hyper perspicuity of I read it just the Bible and me alone, word for word as it is, with no contextual interpretation whatsoever. Oh, and this is the absolutely pitiful excuse of contextualism to try to excuse barbarism. I read the passage word for word. the question of barbarism. If, there, if this is something that's inspired by a God, the one and only thing you should say is, human beings shall not be owned as property. They are not your property. They're not your money. You don't get to beat them as long as they don't die with them. That's an embarrassing not what the text is defense about. to talk about context. What's the context that makes it okay to own people and beat them? The text doesn't actually say it's okay to beat them. It does. It doesn't. But again, for another time, I'll, happy to, I'll, I'll be happy to send you the, the lectures I've done on the exegetical and the original treatment of the original languages that I've sent to you. John, Okay, so uh, this is great because Tyler was accused in the comments of being a liar again on this. So Matt's accused him of being a liar, and now, or at least that he lied, and now the people in the comments have accused him of lying, but on this issue, and that issue is um, whether the Bible says that it's okay to beat your slaves so long as they don't die. Tyler says that is not what it says, and he's absolutely right, that is not what it says. Um, 
<clears throat> I wrote up a brief on this in case this came up in my debate with Matt Dillahunty, and it didn't. But uh, I don't think of this. I, so the words that is translated slave is elsewhere translated better as servant. It's kind of a catch-all phrase for worker. And so um, you can look at this as biblical servanthood rather than biblical slavery. Uh, there is slavery in the Bible, and God repeatedly tells the Israelites to remember when they were slaves and not to be like that. So servanthood, not slavery in Israel, was optionally entered as a mercy to impoverished citizens. And in the words of Old Testament scholar Paul Copan, quote, contrary to the critics, this servanthood wasn't much different experientially from paid employment in a cash economy like ours, end quote. So slavery usually involves kidnapping, which was punishable by death in Israel, Exodus 21, 16. The law was concerned that indentured servants were to be treated as a man, quote, hired from year to year and were not to be, quote, ruled over ruthlessly, Leviticus 25, 53 through 54. Now, here we come to the specific issue that Matt's raising here. The comments about beating a servant in Exodus 21:20 are the same as the comments about two Israelites who are not servants getting in a fight literally two verses prior to that one. People isolate verse 20 as though this is saying it's okay to beat your, your uh, slaves, although they never say it was okay to beat just another free Israelite, right? Well, two verses prior, the same rules are given. The reference to them as property in Exodus 21:20 is poorly translated. It simply means money and refers to the cost the employer has put into his servant. Moreover, if the servant so much as gets a tooth knocked out, he's to be released from his obligations. So the reason that, the reason that it mentions his property actually should be translated money is the punishment. So, so the guy who beats his slave is is servant is actually there's actually a punishment in the fact that now this person who's working for him is is now not able to work he's hurt himself in that situation whereas he has to pay for another free israelite another non-servant israelite he has to pay for his medical expenses basically but in both but but in the but in the case of either one there's a penalty, and here's the thing: if he so much as knocks a tooth out, then this servant is to be set is to be let go. The same passage, Exodus twenty one twenty, humanizes servants even more in that if the employer kills them, he must be punished. And the verb nakam always involves the death penalty in the Old Testament. So the servant's life is equal in value to the employer's life. There is nothing about tricking servants. I mention that because uh, Dillahunty often says that you can trick them. It's nothing uh, you can you, you have to let them free, but you can trick them into being your lifelong slave if you do this and that, if you marry them off. There's nothing about tricking servants into lifetime servanthood. That too is voluntary. And so th this, what's important to note here is what it's saying is if you beat a guy who's another equal Israelite in terms of they're, they're not a servant, and there are ramifications for that. If you beat one of your servants, there are ramifications for that. But here's the thing. It's not saying it's okay to beat them. It's saying if you beat them, be aware of the ramifications. It's not saying so long as they are okay three days later, it's okay. It's saying there are ramifications. And if after three days thus and thus happens, then thus and thus will happen. It's, it's, not, it's, it's telling you what the penalties are. It's not telling you it's okay so long as you're within those penalties. Nowhere in the text does it say that. So Tyler was absolutely right. So I think this is an important thing to point out because Tyler was called a liar for this when he's not. It's just reading the Bible 
like he said, just me and my Bible under the old oak tree, I'm just going to read this and whatever it says without concerns for context, without concerns for the original language and how slave is translated, without concerns for the, the context. And just two verses earlier, we have uh, things laid out for uh, a, a fellow Israelite. And when you compare those, how does it shake out? None of that is there. Tyler's not lying. And that's an important thing, I think, to mention. We have two episodes on slavery uh, in the Bible. You can go check it out. All right, let's move on to this last point because uh, Tyler says something about divine hiddenness that I really want to emphasize because I think he says something very similar to what I say, what I think is the right answer. So this idea that of divine hiddenness, that why isn't God more obvious? Because that seems to be an undercurrent throughout this whole thing. Why isn't God just like giving me more evidence? And here's what Tyler has to say. The, the, um, the hidden God position that God has hidden, I think that God has... Uh, revealed himself in the in uh, the personal work of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, and I think he's revealed himself in special revelation. I think he's revealed himself uh, is majesty, his power in all of creation and the moral law within, and you know, in all of the transcendental facts. I mean, I, I, I think that there is, um, I, I think that there is literally a cosmos of evidence um, that ought to uh, lead any reasonable person uh, to belief in God. Whether all right, does that sound anything like this? This will sound audacious to my friends here who are not believers. But I don't find God to be all that hidden. We have incredible reasons to believe that God exists. Um, we have incredible arguments and evidences from almost every area of investigation. We have inferences from history and science. We have philosophical arguments. We have uh, arguments from, uh, I don't use these, but we could argue from personal experience. Now he's right. Your personal experience of God isn't really evidential for him, but just to put a little gravy on top of this thing tonight, how many of you are convinced you had an experience with God and it would be very difficult to convince you that you haven't? Would you raise your hands? We have all of these kinds of arguments. Many of them I'm not even bringing tonight. So when every physical object and concept in the universe could be used as a reason to believe that God exists, and it strikes me that everywhere I look, there seems to be good evidence for God. So that's like saying every, every physical object and concept in the universe is evidence for God. That's like Tyler saying there is a cosmos of evidence for God, and I agree. And I think that in the microcosm of Tyler Mouse and Matt Mouse in a house full of evidence for a greater being uh, who is there and has certain qualities. I think we actually have much stronger evidence as hu for human Matt to understand that there is a greater being who is the creator, the sustainer, the designer, and, uh, and, and wants us to follow certain moral principles in our lives. What, would it take, what will it take to convince Matt Dillahunty? He says he doesn't know. I don't know either. Because I think what we have is someone who has intentionally or unintentionally created an epistemology that is impervious to the evidence. And he can call me or Tyler a liar for that if he chooses. But when you say, and I'll say it again, the stars could realign to give you a personal message from God, or that someone could part an ocean in Jesus' name, or that um, if an asteroid collided with the moon and in multiple languages it says God exists, and you still wouldn't believe that something supernatural had happened, I think what we're seeing is an unbridled skepticism. 
And what breaks my heart is, and this is meant not in any way to be insulting to Matt, but what breaks my heart is there are so many atheists on the internet right now who are hearing these things and thinking that this means that their position, the same position, is a reasonable position of non-belief. That in spite of the evidences and arguments, to say, I don't know, is the sensible thing. It breaks my heart because I, I don't want to be condescending at all to, to atheists. I love atheists. This channel exists because of my love for atheists. And there are brilliant atheists who are, are members of this channel's audience. And I'm glad you're here. And you, you want to be good parents to your kids just like I want to be a good parent to my kids. And you would help little old men and little old ladies across the street just like I would. But if you're relying on that sort of an epistemology to remain an atheist, let it go. Because to be the Matt Mouse, listening to the Tyler Mouse, and just saying, I don't know, or to go back in the hole and say, when I see that writing on the wall a second time or a third time and it's repeatable, then maybe I'll believe. When you say the stars could realign and how do I know it's not aliens, you have an unbridled skepticism, I think, that is, using the, that is being used to justify a position of non-belief. And I call you to reject that and believe. And further, on the basis of resurrection arguments all over this channel, not that there's been any resurrection argument in this discussion today on this video. I call you to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and I think you will find a reasonable faith. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.